Hello, my name is Kate Chesterman. I'm a GP in South Norfolk and I also co-host the GP Notebook Education Study Groups. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcasts, where we present bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. You can follow me on Twitter, at ChestermanKate, for more information about the new podcasts and study groups as they become available. Now for the next few episodes of the podcast, we've got something a little different for you. In May 2022, as part of something we're calling Chronic Conditions Month, there is a series of seven webinars with live Q&A sessions, each focusing on a different long-term condition. The webinars, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to provide wide-ranging clinical education programme, focusing not only on the diagnosis and management of different chronic conditions, but also on the strategies required to address the complex and challenging interplay between coexisting morbidities. Healthcare professionals in the UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chroniconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining. And to accompany the webinars, the Chronic Conditions faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which they provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So, without further delay, please enjoy the first of these special episodes now. And this one features Dr Sarah Davies and Dr Peter Bagshaw, who will be discussing emotional well-being and long-term conditions. Hello everybody, and a very warm welcome to this podcast. My name is Sarah Davis. I am a GP with a special interest in diabetes from Cardiff in South Wales. And I am joined today by Dr. Peter Bagshaw, who is GP and uh, Somerset CCG lead for mental health, dementia and learning disabilities. Hello, Peter. Hi, Sarah. Lovely to be joining you. Lovely to have you with us and a very warm welcome to everyone that's joining us today. And today's podcast comes to you as part of Chronic Conditions Month 2022, which is taking place throughout May. This includes a whole string of interactive and informative webinars designed to address the primary care challenges of diagnosing and managing chronic conditions across a range of therapeutic areas. Today, in this podcast, we're going to be discussing healthy mind in a healthy body, emotional well-being and long-term conditions. So a very interesting title for today's podcast, Peter. And um, you know, perhaps with my diabetes specialist interest hat on, I think that probably in primary care, we perhaps tend to focus on those physical symptoms of long-term conditions in those reviews with our patients. So I wonder if you can remind us why it matters to consider mental health when we're talking to our patients living with long-term conditions. Absolutely, Sarah. And it, it, it's a fascinating area, isn't it? And something I've grown more interested in as a result of, of having spoken at the Chronic Conditions Conferences for a few years now. And really, the more you look at it, the closer the links between all the different conditions seem to be. Uh, so we know, for instance, that if you have diabetes, you're much more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression. We know that if you have anxiety and depression, it's much harder 
to keep the diabetes under control. And people talk about diabetes burnout. And we know that if you've got uh, depression and anxiety and other mental illnesses, you're much more likely to have dementia, uh, which some people call type three diabetes. So a huge number of links between them. I don't know what you think about the term type three diabetes for dementia. If I'm being totally honest, I'm not a big fan of those kind of, um, I don't know, hard to understand terms, I suppose. What I quite like are terms that sort of says what it is. Um, and if someone hears type 3 diabetes, they might not quite understand those important underlying links. And I, I think it's completely fascinating to think, almost as you say, this sort of tri-directional nature, these relationships, I suppose, between diabetes, depression and dementia, these three D conditions, uh, Peter. And I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about why. So why do we see these links? Am I right in thinking there's social and also biological factors at play here? Yeah, very much so. And there's fascinating research done that if you're genetically prone to mental illness, uh, it seems that you're also likely more genetically prone to type 2 diabetes. And I've no idea why that that is, um, but it seems to be the case. And it looks as though there are underlying uh, causes that are very, very similar. And it's same, same is true for heart disease as well. It's not a D, I'm afraid, um, <laughs> but it's another thing that links in with it. And one of our things when we're talking about dementia is what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So it looks as though they're very similar underlying causes. Now, I don't know what your feeling is. To me, having looked at the evidence, a lot of it seems to be around poor metabolic health, insulin resistance, the fact that we're all eating too much processed food and too much sugar. Uh, and that seems to cause both depression and uh, diabetes as well as heart disease. I don't know if you feel that that's valid or... Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's a lot of those lifestyle factors are at play here, aren't they? With sort of shared common lifestyle risks, I suppose, between several of those conditions. So, you know, making unhealthy lifestyle choices, of course, for a variety of different reasons that people make those choices will increase risk, as you say, of, of diabetes, of heart disease uh, and so on. And also, I don't know how you feel about the sort of theory around chronic stress and inflammation. So that idea that, you know, the body has got this oxidative stress stress going on. And actually that increases risk again of diabetes, heart disease, but also dementia and depression as well. Yeah, really interesting. That That's something that probably 10 years ago, I don't think any of us had any idea about it playing a part in, in mental illness, but increasingly uh, depression uh, is seen as a, a, an inflammatory condition, uh, which, is, which is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And there've been various dietary interventions that show that if you can change your, your lifestyle, change your diet, you can improve depression, anxiety, dementia, certainly uh, going on, for instance, a keto diet in early dementia can, can radically improve uh, cognitive function. Uh, and, and so there seems to be this, this interesting link. And as you say, you also get this tri-directional thing where if you've got diabetes and depression, you tend to exercise less. So that means that you put on more weight and that makes your diabetes worse. So you can get into this vicious circle. And I guess what I hope we can get across to our, our listeners today is what we might be able to do to get out of that vicious circle. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I suppose, you know, it's quite nice to move our conversation today away from thinking about necessarily medications. We spend plenty of time, don't we, talking about medications for our, for our long-term conditions. Rightly so. They form a really important part of, of the treatment of long-term conditions for people as well. But a lot of what we've just been saying is actually saying that 
some lifestyle factors particularly link together these conditions. And perhaps if we can have those conversations with patients, if we can try to motivate some of this lifestyle change, or be that very challenging sometimes to do, isn't it? Perhaps we can make a real impact here. Definitely. And, and there have been some pioneering G- GPs, haven't they? Dave, David Unwin springs to mind as somebody who's done some really good work. And I think he's he's now reduced, um, reversed about 40% of his type 2 diabetes patients, hasn't he? Just by lifestyle and diet advice. Absolutely. And of course, you know, the key thing is, I think when we're giving lifestyle advice, we have to individualise it to the person sat in front of us, don't we? And, you know, not all patients will be suitable for that kind of low carbohydrate approach. And it's all about finding the approach that that person can stick with, can afford, um, you know, and and is able to, to really therefore have success with. And I think it's something we're quite good at doing in primary care is individualising our advice to the person sat in front of us, because very often we know that person, don't we? We know their background. We know who they live with. We know what their attitude is like to various things. Um, and I think, you know, primary in primary care, we've got this unique opportunity to be able to really impart powerful advice. And we shouldn't forget the power of our words, should we, Peter? That that idea about very brief intervention by your primary care physician uh, can be very powerful, can't it? Absolutely. And I, I don't know about you, I find it quite scary that patients will sometimes say to me, oh, do you remember five years ago you told me to do X? And they will remember what we say. We've, well, certainly I have long forgotten that conversation, but it will stick in their minds. And sometimes they'll ignore it. Some, sometimes they'll act on it. So we do have this very powerful uh, tool of, of trying to persuade people. And of course, we've got the benefit of saying, I'll see you again in six weeks. And, and that puts pressure on somebody to actually do what we've done, uh, what we've suggested. So are there any tips you can give on how to improve the advice that we give and, and make it stick better. So I, I, I think it's being careful with the language that we choose. And, you know, I think particularly when we're thinking about things like type 2 diabetes, we can sometimes use a lot of sort of blame language and be perhaps quite negative in the way that we talk about things. Um, whereas actually what we need to do is, is be motivational um, and get people, I suppose, to understand the positives of these lifestyle change. And I think it's, it's very important when we think about talking to people living with obesity. The same thing counts. You know, we want to look at, well, what are the health advantages? You know, actually, if you could manage to lose a little bit of weight in this next six months, that knee pain is going to really improve. And actually, your diabetes is going to get an awful lot better as well. And I quite like looking at those positive health benefits rather than focusing on the negatives. Well, goodness me, your weight has gone up and so is your HbA1c. Um, I, I like to look at the positives that they might be able to achieve and making sure we keep things realistic as well. You know, if you've got somebody you know, who needs to lose, you know, six stone, we can't expect them to be able to do that within six months. It's really challenging, especially in the environment in which we live. Um, So setting realistic goals, I think is helpful. But I think most importantly, as a, a doctor, a nurse practitioner, a practice nurse working in primary care, our therapeutic relationship with our patients is so important, developing that relationship over time that they trust what we say, and that they're really perhaps therefore able to take on board that advice. Absolutely. Yes. In- encouragement and accepting where they are, as you say, not blaming, which we, we do tend to do, unfortunately, don't we? So it's really important to be non-judgmental, isn't it? 
Absolutely. There's a lovely document called Language Matters in uh, Type 2 Diabetes um, Treatment. And um, it's got some lovely, uh, it was an NHS England document a couple of years ago now. And it's got some lovely tips for different phrases you might want to use when we're talking to our patients, particularly those living with type 2 diabetes. But one of the problems I've got, Peter, is that in primary care, we are under such pressure at the moment. You know, we have so little time. We can often feel like we're firefighting. Um, and we want to be having these positive conversations with patients. How do we how do we open that up? So say I've got a patient living with type 2 diabetes, perhaps they've got heart disease as well. Um, and I also want to see how they're getting on with their mental health. It can feel a bit like opening a can of worms, you know, to be honest, uh, in that little time that I've got. So how in primary care can I have that conversation around mental health with that patient? Absolutely. And a lot of people are scared to raise those topics, aren't they? And there's been lots of evidence uh, that, for instance, for people with severe depression, uh, health professionals and others are really scared to talk about suicide, whereas actually mentioning that doesn't increase the risk that somebody will uh, will attempt suicide. So talking about it is so important. You mentioned uh, emotional well-being. Can I give a, a quick plug to our Somerset Emotional Wellbeing podcast. Oh, please do. That sounds interesting. So this is something that uh, Andrew Chisida and myself have started up since the pandemic as a way of trying to give motivational advice to people and encourage them to be out in nature, to be exercising, to, to be doing healthy things and think positive things. So it isn't only available to those uh, living in Somerset. It's In fact, we have readers from around the world. Uh, as Nicholas Parsons used to say on just a minute. Uh, so if if a quick way of doing it, it is just to give advice to people saying there are these resources available. We've all got access to talking therapies. Um, say to people, if you're interested in finding out more about emotional support, emotional well-being, just just Google Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast and, uh, and, and listen to the two of us chuntering away with some really good guests. Another, another way of, as you say, saving time, and this is a cheat, is that there's lots of evidence that practice nurses are actually listened to as much as GPs. <laughs> and they tend to, to have a bit more time, don't they? So that's a, a cheating way, is if you have a good relationship with other members of the primary healthcare team, uh, get them to see people more frequently. But to me, I don't know about you, I, I find increasingly general practice, it's... It's often conversations that are frustrating. So going around the same thing every time is really frustrating. Whereas if you just put that little bit extra time and energy into having a good motivational conversation using the right words, that can be immensely satisfying for you. And I'm sure you've had the same experience of me that patients will come back in a few weeks and say, well, actually, I do feel a bit better. And I have shifted a couple of pounds. Yeah. I know I agree. And I think that that idea about going around in circles, can, it can really get you down sometimes, you know, when you feel like you're having the same conversation and, you know, that, that actually it's not really having an impact. You're, you're right that actually if you can just sow a little seed and then see it make a difference. I think as a healthcare practitioner, that's incredibly satisfying um, to, to see that that happening. And have you got any tips, Peter? What, what are your top tips with your sort of special interest background? You know, how can I get that patient engaged? What, what, what would you suggest? Okay, well, I, I did a talk a while back on personality disorder and, and how you can get change there. And there's a, um, a technique, dialectic behavioral therapy that's used for that, where, again, it's non judgmental. 
you accept the way the person is now and you don't say that what you're doing now is wrong. But having accepted that, you say, well, maybe there are other ways of looking at this that might be more helpful. So I think if we can use those principles of DBT in our everyday life, uh, in practice, you can make some real changes to patients. So as you say, it's all about accepting who they are, accepting the lifestyle that they're using at the moment, not being judgmental about that, but suggesting improvements in a very open way and, and trying to take somebody with you. So uh, a tip that one person finds very useful is to say, what do you want to achieve? What is your goal? And if, if the patient sets the goal, then you're, you're immediately having a different conversation. Did, I don't know if that, that's something that you find useful. I love that idea. Absolutely. That kind of patient-centred goal. And and for them setting the goal rather than you, um, much more put, puts the onus, but you're also able to prioritise truly what matters to them. There's no point us setting a goal if actually that doesn't really matter to that patient anyway, because they've got so much else going on that, you know, that will just be ignored. I really like that idea of, of the patient setting their own goal. I think that's... Um, that's brilliant. And, and I also like the idea about um, utilising our multidisciplinary team members in primary care. So I think that, you know, you're quite right. Our practice nurses often will have excellent relationships with patients living with long term conditions because they see them for those conditions reviews year in and year out. And, and often, as you say, have that perhaps little bit more time to spend with those patients. Um, but also people like our clinical pharmacists, actually, I'm now increasingly seeing are also developing those really helpful therapeutic relationships and, and more and more are able to have these powerful conversations, including around lifestyle. And I think, you know, the thought provoker for me is the fact that actually, if we can talk about lifestyle change, if we can promote mental health care as well in patients living with long-term conditions we can actually improve the outcome from those long-term conditions isn't that right peter we can actually improve the outcomes from type 2 diabetes from heart disease and so on absolutely absolutely and um again i think it's important to tell patients look this is not an inevitable thing a lot of people think oh my type 2 diabetes is just something that's come along as i've got got older or oh i've always been prone to depression, I can't do anything about that. So telling people that they can actually influence their long-term condition is so important. And we know that if you can get people to follow the right lifestyle advice, type two diabetes, you can reverse in about 40% of people, can't you? Um, dementia, likewise, if people follow the right lifestyle advice, you can prevent dementia in about 40% of cases. And if somebody has got anxiety or depression, it's not an on-off thing but you can move them up or down the scale with the right advice. So empowering people to know that they, they actually can make a difference to their condition, I think is incredibly important. Yeah, I think sometimes people feel that, you know, that, that they're having to deal with, with that long-term condition, that it's ruling them, I suppose, uh, and absolutely putting them back in some control with changes that they can actively make. Um, I, think, I think that's a really helpful idea. I wonder, if Peter, you could tell us a little bit more about the links with dementia, if you wouldn't mind. And, and perhaps it's not something that we consider as a preventable, to a degree, disease. Um, tell us just a little bit more before we finish um, about, about the evidence there and about what we could do in primary care to make a difference there. Yes, absolutely. And if you ask the average person in the street, that they think that there's very little that we can do. But as I say, the current evidence is that we can prevent it in about 40% of cases, so nearly half, which is astonishing. And I agree with you that 
um, calling it type 3 diabetes is an oversimplification. But it does look as though a lot of the risk factors for dementia and type 2 diabetes and heart disease uh, are similar. And so it's around um, keeping our weight down, regular exercise, though you can't exercise a, out a bad diet, as, as we all know. Uh, it's around not being socially isolated. We know that depression, social isolation, hearing loss increases the risk of dementia. It looks as though you're saying there's an inflammatory component to mental illness and dementia as well. So having the Mediterranean diet with lots of olive oil uh, and trying to cut out ultra processed food looks to be important in, in reducing uh, that. So uh, reducing hypertension and, and the single most important thing actually is if you've got type two diabetes, control your type two diabetes, whether it's by lifestyle or medication or a mixture of both, because that seems to be the single most important risk for dementia. So a lot of people have seen the Lancet paper a few years ago and that's now been updated. Um, so, yeah, I think getting the message across that this is something that is preventable. And we've done it with heart disease. People know about that, but we haven't got the message across with dementia, even though that is now the most feared diagnosis in the over 50s. Yeah, I was going to say it's surprising, isn't it? And perhaps that's a real take home message from the, today's podcast is to try to perhaps get that message out there a bit more, because actually, I think people are terrified of getting dementia, understandably, um, perhaps more so than they can almost imagine heart disease or, or type two diabetes. And then I think actually, that's a that's a really powerful message for us to take out there is that, you know, you can potentially make a difference actually even to your risk of dementia by making these changes. I wonder just before we finish, Peter, because we're running rapidly out of time we could chat about this um for, for hours i think it's, it's a fascinating subject just give us perhaps your top tips then for us working out there in the wilds of primary care and about how we can really enhance this idea about healthy mind in a healthy body okay top tips would be firstly be positive encourage people don't bash them up over their lifestyle uh accept where they are and, and try and help them move on to where we feel they should be that will improve. Remember the links between mental health and physical health and the old um, healthy mind, healthy body uh, saying is several thousand years old, but increasingly the, the latest evidence shows that it is the case uh, that there's a, a huge link between them. And invest in time to have that therapeutic conversation so that you can make people make changes uh, and follow them up and you will find it immensely rewarding i have and i'm sure you have sarah have people come back and say to you wow i i thought this pain in my hip was was stuck and i was going to head along for a hip replacement of, in a few years but actually i've lost a bit of weight i've changed my diet the pain's better i feel brighter um i feel less depressed i can do more so th those would be my top tips any you want to add sarah no, Peter, I think that, that's that's brilliant and given us plenty to go at. I think it's just reminding ourselves that actually, although it might feel like opening a can of worms to try and have these sometimes difficult conversations with patients, actually, we can make multiple improvements to their health and in the end, actually improve the outcomes from their long term conditions or maybe even prevent or reverse those long term conditions altogether. Peter, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm sure everyone's really enjoyed it and it's been uh, very thought-provoking indeed. Thank you, Sarah. And uh, we'll look forward to any feedback that uh, people have. 
um, because I know these things are easy to talk about and harder to do in practice. Absolutely. No, fantastic. And thank you all for listening. We hope you found this podcast really helpful. Do make sure that you register on the Chronic Conditions website so that you can listen to the other podcasts in the series as well. And also to our interactive webcasts, which are brought to you as part of the Chronic Conditions Month 2022. And you can sign up for all of this material at chroniccondition.co.uk. Thanks, everyone. And we'll see you again very soon. Thank you.